Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Tax Symposium Europe 2022 in Barcelona, Spain, where I'm excited to be joined by Mario Alberto Gutierrez. Mario is an international tax partner with PwC in Mexico City and leader of the international tax services practice in Mexico. Mario, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. Happy we've been, to be here. We've been talking about doing this for a long time, and we ended up having to come to Europe for yeah. us to do a podcast <laughs> on Mexico. It happens. It happens sometimes. That it, it's not gonna. It's gonna happen when it's gonna, it's gonna happen. So don't worry. Great. Um, so before we dive into some of the substance material, and there's been a lot of activity that's taking place oh, yeah. in Mexico, so we're long due for this podcast, but. I took two years of Spanish in high school. I've been down to visit you a number of times in Mexico City. You know my Spanish isn't great. I can order a cerveza. I can find where the bathroom is. What I want to know is, as a native Spanish speaker here in Barcelona, in Barcelona, in Catalan, how do you do here with the language uh, in Barcelona? Well, to start, you know, it's it's the Spanish in in, in Spain. It's Castilian, so. It, we already start with some differences in there. But then, talking about specifically Barcelona, I mean, it's, it's Catalan. So I think it, I, I'm, I'm as, it's as complex for me as it is with Portuguese. You know, oh, I hear them, I think I understand them, but they realize that I'm totally lost. Okay. And the problem is that they can understand my Spanish. So I feel like in disadvantage there, I prefer to be a little bit more quiet when I'm on the streets, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's interesting that you think that because they're kind of come from the same roots, right. you will understand a little bit of it. But no, I just realized that my Portuguese and my, and my Catalan, I probably just leave it for, for, for home. All right. I'm not sure. I don't think I could order a beer or find the bathroom in Portuguese or, <laughs> or in Catalan. So, uh, um, all right. Well, good to know. So let's talk about some Mexican tax sure. developments. There's a lot that has occurred um, in, in recently. Um, and I wanted to start with the implementation of the multilateral instrument. Yeah. Mario, I'll be honest, I think we talked about this on the podcast like three or four years ago. Yeah. I think it was 2018. To remind listeners, it's 2022. <laughs> Mexico is now officially adopted the MLI, right. I believe, although there may be some more procedural stuff. How did we get here, Mario? Yeah. And then we'll kind of dive into to, to what some of these rules mean. And it's what I call the wolf is coming. The wolf is coming. The wolf is here now. All so right. we have to be prepared for that. So a little bit of history on that is just, as you're saying, uh, 2017, 2018, pretty much when this instrument was uh, made public and you know all the countries started to adhere to, to, to it, uh, Mexico did the same. I mean, we announced that we were going to be part of it and that we were going to be mm -hmm. you know adopting this 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 model this instrument we have evidence that you know this document was passed to the congress specifically to the senate in 2018 but it was only after four years that they decided to start uh, discussing it uh, within the chamber and then pass it for ratification at the level of the senate so that happened last month uh, so now the process, this is the part that is a little bit different from other processes. So it's been ratified by the Congress, by the Senate in Mexico. Okay. Now it has to go through a process that is called the deposit. So they have to send it to the OCD and it has to be considered deposited. Once that happened, 
there's a three-month period that has to pass before it's enforced. Okay. And then we have to go and see what's the option that Mexico selected to be applicable. And Mexico went for the option that it will start the January 1st of the following year. So thinking with all these elements, the date that we think is going to start be fully enforceable, applicable, and, and kind of the deadline that we have, if you will, it's January 1st, 2024. Okay. So it's strange for us that so far the, 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 the government hasn't sent for deposit uh, this instrument to the OECD, but you know, generally speaking, they have from today and until September 2023 to send it to the OECD, then the three months that they have to, to pass. Uh, October, November, December 2023, and it will be enforced January 1st, 2024. So that's why we're thinking that's going to be the, 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 the date that is going to be more relevant for, for, for starting following this rule. Right. And I guess another way to, to say it, or another way to put it is probably we're going to have at least one year of, uh, of a window of opportunity to review the implications of this instrument. And get ready. Get ready to it and see if there's anything that needs to be done, any I wouldn't necessarily say just tweaks, but probably in some cases some big amendments to the structure that probably we have just to make sure we're sure. in compliance going forward. Yeah, remind, how many treaties do you, does Mexico have? We have 60 treaties. Out of those 60, uh, 56 are, uh, are, are what, they, we, uh, what you know, we're, 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 they are going to be considered as a treaties covered by, by this multilateral, okay. by the MLI. The, Four ones that are not in there, one is U.S. Right, is not that's part a of big MLI. one, yeah. The other one is Brazil, that it's still not OECD, but they have mentioned their intention to convert into, into OECD. And the other, for instance, is Germany, that the, the, the interesting point with Germany is that they are, not, uh, and they are not covered right now by the multilateral instrument, with Mexico in particular, but they have sent a protocol uh, to amend the current treaty between Mexico and Germany, and the, the pieces or the articles that they want to amend basically want to include all these BEPS rules I into see. the treaty. So I think they, are, they were betting on who's gonna approve it first, either Mexican Congress to get them alive, or in the particular the discussion that they're having, the negotiation that they're having for this additional protocol of the treaty. Got it. So for many U.S. multinationals, obviously they haven't signed up for the, the multilateral instrument, and then it sounds like there are some sort of technical issues with the treaty from a German perspective, yeah. but it is not uncommon for um, companies to invest in Mexico through a holding company that you know you, you already have a, a, a treaty network with. So yeah. what are some things that the taxpayers and advisors should be mindful of as they're looking at, at, at structures? And I think really, presumably the, the treaty abuse is, is probably the, the biggest issue that companies need to keep an eye on. That's, that's correct. And let me give you a couple of examples. And maybe just to start, I would say, you know, let's, let's remember that most of these structures were put in place when the tax frame was different to the one that we have today. You know, there were different rules, different way to approach some of those uh, tax implications. Sure. So I would say it's, it's a different world, the one that we used to have in the past to the one that we are living I today. I certainly agree with that. And with that in mind, you know, the typical structures that we believe tax authorities are gonna start looking at, for instance, as you were saying, holding company in country A that has a subsidiary, a subholding country B, and then that subsidiary is the one that holds the Mexican shares. 
what tax authorities, we believe, are going to be interesting to understand is, you know, why is that country B uh, entity interposed mm -hmm. between country A and Mexico? And if the answer is because the treatment, the tax treatment maybe on dividends or capital gains is better by having that country be in between the structure, then that's where you know, all these uh, anti-abuse and kind of to try to avoid the treaty shopping rules will kick in. What we think that tax authorities are going to start asking, especially with the principal purpose test, mm -hmm. is that they're going to start asking things like, okay, why you have that structure? What are the non-tax reasons to have that structure? And in the particular case of Mexico, we know that the tax authorities typically don't, they don't stop there. Typically they go a little bit more beyond that part and what they will request is documentation. Sure. So when I think about this, you know, the typical document that comes to my mind, the first document that I, that I, that I visualize is the slide deck where all the tax implications are included sure. in there. That's the document that we don't want to share with the tax authorities. Not because it's wrong, but you know, it has all the tax analysis and what tax authorities want to see is what are those other analyses from a business perspective, from a, a protection, investment protection perspective. You know, all those other things that uh, were analyzed to get to that conclusion. Right. Yeah, from my experience, you know, working on these, these types of structures, the withholding tax implications are a factor in determining what is the appropriate holding company. Correct. Obviously, the substance and the investment vehicle and debt financing, I mean, there's a whole Correct. number of different issues. And I think, you know, this is something that we've struggled with, obviously not just with Mexico, but applying the, the multilateral instrument. And it's going to be interesting to see how taxing authorities kind of look at this. But, you know, as an advisor and as a taxpayer who is working on, let's say, doing a, a big investment in Mexico, whether it's an acquisition or maybe you're just you know, yeah. doing organic growth and forming a Mexican sub subsidiary, well, who that investor is, there are a number of different factors that would apply. Correct. You would like you would be incompetent as a tax advisor <laughs> to not contemplate withholding taxes as one of the factors in determining what the appropriate jurisdiction is. And I think what's really challenging for both advisors and taxpayers is that well, if withholding tax was one of the the factors, does that violate this this principal exactly. purpose test? Exactly. And I think it makes it very challenging for advisors and taxpayers now. If withholding tax was the only reason that you'd set up the the holding company, Correct. I think that's you know much more within the crosshairs of the multilateral instrument. But I think the lesson is it's important for taxpayers to kind of understand, and particularly for some of these structures that have been in place for yeah. many, many years, years. Um, to go back and, and look at that 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 documentation, whether it's the initial slide deck or subsequent decks, exactly. to really think about a principal purpose test and knowing that it is a very vague standard um, and potentially gives the, the taxing authorities some, some ammo to come after these structures. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And I think that, again, when we think from the Mexican perspective, one, uh, an additional item would be, okay, it's one of the many factors, and I hear that. It's not the only one, so that's good. You have many other factors. Where would you put in that list. Yeah, how do you rank this, order them? Exactly, I mean, it's, is, is it the most relevant one or, right. or how many factors do you right. really need to consider before saying, no, this is not one of the main ones 
the tax implication. So yeah, it's 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 it, that's going to be the complexity in that. Yeah, way. another gray area, and we've seen this in in other jurisdictions mm -hmm. as well. Just challenging again for both taxpayers and advisors. Um, one of the other I know um, issues within the multilateral instrument is related to transparency. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And regarding transparency and arbitration, what I can say is that historically Mexico has not followed any of those alternatives. On, on one end, uh, you know, regarding transparency, tax authorities in Mexico, they don't, they don't see it. I mean, they don't respect it. They, don't, they, they, they actually amended the laws in 2020 to say, you know, if you have a transparent entity either above or below a Mexican company or a Mexican individual, you have to look at it, and we have very particular rules for that. So transparency is definitely out of the picture. With the U.S. So when there's a payment, for example, just to make sure I understand, mm -hmm. so when, when there's a payment to an entity that would otherwise be transparent for the investor jurisdiction Correct. of that transparent entity, you would you do not, the, the rules do not allow you to kind of look through that to exactly. the investing jurisdiction into the transparent entity. You actually look at that effectively, I guess, nowhere entity. Exactly. And, and that's a problem because when you have to look at it and you see that it's a company that is basically not paying taxes because of the transparency that they are using, pretty much the answer for Mexico will be, okay, you're making a payment or you're, doing, you're entering into a, tra a tra transaction with a tax haven jurisdiction. So that's, that's the problem with that. that you know, right. And to your point, oftentimes we'll invest in a transparent entity, but it's the, the partners, for example, exactly. in the partnership still may be paying tax on that. Exactly. But Mexico won't look through and say, yeah, there's still, this is still subject to tax. It's just, nope, it's a transparent entity. So just another trap for taxpayers, uh, advisors to be mindful exactly. of. Exactly. And with arbitration, the, the thing is that uh, Mexico doesn't feel very comfortable like, you know, putting these type of discussions on third party hands. So, you know, they also opted better not to go for any of the of the possibilities for arbitration. It's, you know, a little bit of a shame because it would be great to be able to involve, you know, or to have a, a different uh, tool to try to get to some common ground, to some negotiations, but, you know, it's out of the table now. Okay. All right, so let's let's move away from the multilateral instrument. I want to come to the 2022 Tax Act. And so it's the end of 2022 year, so it's been a busy year in Mexico. The first question I wanted to ask you, and I find this more fascinating just as a, as a U.S. advisor and somebody who advises a lot on subchapter yeah. C and mergers and acquisitions, particularly share transfers, is that Mexico has now implemented a business purpose yeah. requirement for, for share transfers. Tell us a little bit uh, about those rules and kind of how that changes the game for, for 2022. And it's, it's, it's really has, it, really, it really is changing you know, the way that we are uh, approaching those type of uh, transactions. The, the thing is, in the past, you know, the requirement was, and the way that I always think of it is, okay, if you are a foreigner and you want to dispose of Mexican shares, you pay me 25% on the gross proceeds, and let's forget about it. You know, I feel comfortable with that amount, and you can walk, walk, walk away. If you want to pay less, then appoint someone in Mexico, so as a tax authority, I can go and knock on the door of this uh, person in Mexico or this company in Mexico and ask for more information and, you know, get more comfortable that the taxes were determined properly. So that, was, that, that continues to be the rule. The thing that they added is that now that person that you can appoint in Mexico to be the legal representative has to satisfy certain specific requirements. And we've been calling this like, uh, you know, now it has to be like a rich uh, legal representative in Mexico. And by rich, what we mean is one of the new requirements is that 
this individual or this company has enough assets to cover any tax liability that is determined by the tax authorities. Remember that the legal representative in Mexico becomes joint liable for any taxation of the, of the foreign company. And one of the requirements, I mean, I think it's okay you know, for and tax authorities to ensure that the, the, the person is going to have assets or, or a way to uh, face any, any payment or any liability in case they review it. Got it. So this is for uh, when you're doing, a, a, let's say, a third-party disposition. I assume it would also apply for, if you're doing a related party Correct. transaction Correct. For, for consideration. Internal as well. But really relates to the non-resident capital gains tax in Mexico, exactly. which obviously we don't have in the U.S., so I always have to get my head back, in, back <laughs> into this. And so this really relates to when that non-resident is disposing of those shares. Exactly. The general rule is that you would normally be subject to 25% mm -hmm. taxes on the gross proceeds. That sounds expensive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so and so if you can get a, an appropriate representation involved, then what explain to me how that works how you get to effectively a net basis exactly. taxation. That's what you get. You 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 should be able to get to a net basis, a 30 35% of the net gain, which typically represents that you can use your tax basis and that reduces the tax base in Mexico and therefore you end up paying less. So the logic, the, the typical mechanic is 25% on gross is much more expensive than sure. 35 on that. But to, to, to do that appointment now, this legal representative, this person that is going to be acting on behalf of the foreign company has to have enough assets I to see. face any liability from the tax authority. So if they, they come and say, you know, I don't agree with your calculation, I think you should have paid more, they will go with this individual or this company in Mexico and say, now you are joint liable with the foreigner, pay me these taxes. So I got it. So it really becomes a mechanism for collection of that tax exactly. because if not, it becomes very difficult for the Mexican authorities to go after some non-resident to be able to collect the tax. Exactly. Presumably, if it's the, the, the target that's being sold in Mexico, you know, presumably they have the appropriate assets. So you just need to make sure that you identify that person from, that, from the Mexican target mm -hmm. and that business has the appropriate assets to support yeah. the, the sale. The thing is that it doesn't stop there. There's one additional change because that, in a way, we already had it. Okay. The additional change is now, for instance, one of the requirements is that the equity, if it's a company that you appointed in Mexico, that the equity of this company, the, the liability or the possible liability is no higher than 10% of the total equity of the company. I see. So let's say, that, you know, to put a very simple example, if we say that the liability could be $10, this company has to have at least $100 as equity. So if you add as many zeros as you want to those numbers, right. if we're saying that maybe the taxation is going to be $10 million, then you need, you know, a really big amount of equity in the Mexican right. company to be able to act as the legal representative of this uh, foreign company. That's what we're seeing that uh, it's not easy to satisfy that requirement. Actually, from our perspective, uh, you know, it, it really gives us some, some thought about is this rule trying to avoid the use of the treaties? Of course, tax authorities are going to say no, mm -hmm. but you know we can't help but thinking that you know this is some sort of way to limit. I see that, a mechanism that, that to be able to, to to get after that that underlying base. Very there can be, of course, a lot of critics around that idea. You know that sure. uh, uh, whether it's uh, 
it, it's valid or not to, we, we don't follow the same rules like in the US where the latest rule is the one that you apply. Yeah. We kind of follow pretty more. pretty unique, I think, in the US. <laughs> we follow more like, you know, OECD and Pacta Susan right. Salvanda things uh, where, you know, we should respect the, the, the agreement that was, uh, that, that, you know, that, that, that was concluded when, when, when this was negotiated. Got and it. with these changes, you know, again, you can help but think that this is, uh, in a way, uh, avoiding or, you know, limiting the use of those treaties. Okay. So the other, I think, big change from the 2022 Act related to maquiladoras and the ability to be able to get um, APAs. Yeah. So tell, tell me, tell us a, a little about that. Yeah, and that's, that's unfortunately as well for, for the maquiladoras. As you know, uh, many years ago, we used to have, and, and when I say many, to be honest, it's, it's not that many. Uh, but we used to have like at least three methodologies to determine what would be, you know, or what would be considered as an arms length transaction for maquiladoras. Mm -hmm. Now they have been eliminating some of those alternatives where basically right now for 2022 going forward, we only have the safe harbor rule. It's either 6.9 or a, it, it's, well, it's, it's either on the assets or, 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 or on the, a, expenses of the company, mm -hmm. uh, 6.9 or uh, 6.8 uh, on, on, on that part. But, you know, the point is that they, they are limiting the possibility to use this type of... Uh, yeah, there used to be more flexibility. And, and to remind listeners that the maquiladora is, is generally a structure for Mexican manufacturing where the principal or the investing jurisdiction is, is deemed to own the, the, the assets, the Correct. manufacturing assets, Everything. the raw materials, the inventory, Dollar. and effectively Mexico is taxed as, as a toller. Exactly. And so, you know, historically, we've been, been able to, to do advanced pricing agreements, work with the Mexican government to determine what the appropriate return should be related to that kind of toll, I call it a tolling return, because yeah, it's very exactly. similar to a, a toll manufacturer. And so I think as a result now of the 2022 Act, Companies are just, you have to deal with the, you just have to deal with the safe harbor. Exactly. And, you know, there's one of the, the one of the strategies that some of the companies followed uh, before the fiscal year ended uh, last year was to file for an APA. But they hadn't received any reply right now. So they are facing right now the decision, okay, what if the fiscal year ends, uh, our fiscal year ends in December 31st? Mm -hmm. So what if the fiscal year ends and I'm still not getting that confirmation from the tax authorities? Do I have to kind of go back and amend the whole year? Can I still wait? And you know, the implications that this is going to have as well in uh, the, the accounting side, whether I have to sure. record something as a UTP or something like that. So it's, it's, um, it's a problem we are facing now with the, with the maquiladoras and unfortunately we are not uh, we don't have the entire rules right now that will give us more clarity, you know, how to follow on that one. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned for those. Um, along those lines with the Maquiladora, because I think it's been a very effective regime that Mexico has implemented. I mean, it's been around for decades, yes. right? Yeah. Um, to be able to attract particularly manufacturing investment into Mexico. You know, with all the supply chain disruption that we've seen and what we refer to often in the U.S. is nearshoring, right? Mm -hmm. So U.S. multinationals, and frankly, not even just U.S. multinationals, non-U.S. multinationals that are looking to have manufacturing closer to their customers, so really anybody serving the U.S. Just more from a, a macro perspective, um, have you seen, you know, significant additional investment and kind of more 
clients and, and taxpayers interested in, 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 in the Maquila regime, or maybe if they're not even interested in the Maquila regime, if they're serving the Mexico market, yeah. looking for Mexican manufacturing? Not yet, but at least, for instance, I was just reading on the newspapers the other day that the Mexican Ministry of Economy, according to their intel, they expect at least 400 U.S. companies to probably move their presence, their plants from Asia to Mexico. And at the same time, we are hearing or, or you know, we're seeing the interest of Asian countries to start having a footprint in Mexico mm -hmm. and kind of get closer to the U.S. Yeah, to their market. So yeah, I think it, it, that's fascinating, and I, that's consistent with what I've read. Is and, and I think there's this perception of, oh, well, nearshoring is happening. And I think the, the answer is it, this just takes a long time, yeah. right? Like you just don't move manufacturing that has been set up many years ago. Correct. And um, I think that, you know, as a trend, and we've talked a lot about transformation and business transformations here on the Cross Border Tax Talks podcast, that. You know, it's like stay tuned, uh, and I think the Mexican government is doing the same as well as advisors of, you know, we will see kind of more the nearshoring and trying to get closer yeah. to, to markets. Ah, and that, that was going to be very interesting because, again, as you're saying, it's just the moving itself of those plans, of those investments, but everything that is around it. I mean, I see the uh, infrastructure, the labor force, you know, all those other things that yeah. can be triggered by these uh, type of investments, that's, that's going to be very interesting. So you're saying we're, we're going to have to wait and see a little bit, but I think at the same time we're going to have to prepare and start thinking, you know, how, that, how those models are going to impact and how they can uh, be implemented in Mexico, as right. you're saying, from a custom, VAT, income, maquiladora perspective, all those kind right. of things. And we're going to add Pillar 2 to that list, but, but <laughs> hang, hang on here, because you know I can't, I can't not talk about Pillar 2 on these podcasts. But before we get there, I wanted to talk about debt structures in Mexico. And so mm -hmm. I've been working with you on this with, for, for, for years. And um, you know, for companies that use related party debt to finance Mexico. So very common, right? If a U.S. multinational is investing into Mexico, mm -hmm. they will capitalize that Mexican entity with some combination of debt and equity. Mm -hmm. And if you lend in U.S. dollars, which has historically been more stable, um, right, you have to deal with this thing called the inflation adjustment mm -hmm. in, in Mexico. So remind listeners, and particularly because the U.S. dollar has strengthened so much, and I just did a podcast with Rebecca Lee a few podcasts mm -hmm. ago on U.S. foreign currency issues and, frankly, opportunities for taxpayers given a strong U.S. dollar. But maybe remind folks, particularly for, for taxpayers that do have related party debt, what is the inflation adjustment and why is it so important, particularly for non-peso denominated debt? Sure. No, and it's a very important point. Of course, for us Mexicans that we have lived or our lives, you know, surrounded and, 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 and facing the inflation, it's, uh, we're, we're used to it. Right. But yes, for people who is not used to these inflationary times, it's, it's kind of a new thing. And it's something that probably they have suffered, let me put in those terms, in the past. But now with the rates of inflation that we are, we're, we're seeing, you can feel that impact even more, more, more significantly, sure. more severe. So basically, this inflation adjustment means that uh, I kind of see it a little bit more from an economic perspective, where if you lend me money, you're having like a cost of opportunity, meaning that with that money, probably you can go and buy some stuff and it will you know, cost you certain amount. Of course, you're going to be receiving the interest from, from, from the loan that you're giving to me. You're, I'm going to be paying you interest in, and that's going to be your profit, if you will. But the fact that you are not going to be able to use that money to get those goods at a certain price, but probably just in the future when you receive the payment of the principal that I'm going to give you, 
you're going to go and try to get those goods, but probably now they're going to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. That, from an economic perspective, what it basically means is that you're having a loss, so that means that someone is having a, a, a win on that, mm -hmm. on that. From a tax perspective... So it treats almost the, the, that the borrowing Mexican subsidiary as the winner, if you will, exactly. which then requires some sort of imputation of income exactly. on top of the interest deduction that you would otherwise take. Exactly, exactly. So that translated to the tax arena, what it means is that because I'm being leveraged by you know, a loan from a, any party, I'm going to have to calculate a phantom income from this loan that I'm receiving. So basically it's the inflation. Uh, that, that, that it's, it's what is going to be added, it's what is going to be considered as this additional revenue. So why it's so important, because the way that I think of it, and, and let me kind of give the takeaway first, is you have to crunch the numbers and put the model to understand better, you know, what's going to be your position when you start asking uh, or start, start receiving some loans from abroad or right. even, even within Mexico. The point is, if you don't do that mathematic, what could happen is that the logic that you expect to have a deduction because of paying interest could turn into actually an additional revenue because of this inclusion of the, of the inflation. So just to give you a very quick example, if the inflation in Mexico, let's say it's 8%, and your interest rate is 10%, that just means that you have a net effect of deduction of 10 versus revenue of 8, and you have a net of 2, which probably is not that attractive anymore. Mm -hmm. And then if on top of that you add like the withholding, the foreign exchange, some limitations for TINCAP, for EBITDA, all those other rules. Yeah, that layering in all those other rules. Then, I mean, it, it's not unlikely that if you don't do all this analysis, you can end up with additional revenue than rather just the deduction that you were thinking that you would have in the beginning. So, right. and, and obviously the interest with a higher interest rate environment, maybe that helps too, but mm -hmm. also we're at a higher inflationary adjustment. And I think if there's one thing that you've taught me over the years is you gotta do the math. Yeah. And, and then you have to keep up with, you obviously have to keep up with the math on an annual basis. And I think that it's just very important for listeners to understand that it is possible that that can go upside down. In other words, that the inflation adjustment ends up being more than the interest deduction. Correct. And so yeah. in that case, taxpayers may be much better advised just to invest in equity Correct. from the U.S., for example. The U.S. is just an example. Mm -hmm. It's really any mm -hmm. right, foreign, exactly. non-Mexican investment. But they may be better advised to actually just invest in equity as opposed to a combination of debt and exactly. equity. That's All right. That's important. So really important point on the, the inflation adjustment. Um, so let's move then to here, uh, kind of the home stretch to, to, to pillar two. Um, have spent a lot of time here on the cross-border tax talks talking about pillar two, particularly with Europe and the fact that the U.S. is not going to be implementing their version of pillar two, particularly now with the divided government in the yeah. last couple of years here with the Biden administration. But uh, what are you hearing in Mexico from a pillar two perspective? And I feel like generally kind of south of the border of the U.S. and in Mexico, Central America, and even South America, things have been pretty quiet. I know we've had 137 countries that signed <laughs> on to the pillar too, but I feel like it's been pretty quiet. So what's going on in Mexico? Yeah, and unfortunately, as you're saying, I mean, we have heard a little bit about it, not official positions, okay. maybe, you know, a little bit, if you will, more like rumors or, you know, kind of personal point of views. Sure. But... Uh, no pronoun no formal pronouncements by not at the all. Mexican not government. Not at all. No, no, not at all. And, and basically, it's a little bit more like wait and see. Uh, 
Uh, they're kind of expecting to see how this develops. And I think um, the general perspective is because our, our current corporate income tax rate is 30%, we kind of see ourselves as one of those jurisdictions that is going to be far from the 15% global rate that you know it's been uh, currently discussed right. for this pillar too. So that's kind of the starting point. Then from uh, you know multi uh, multi multinational companies like you know having investment around the world, we have some. I don't think as many as you know probably in the states or other 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 jurisdictions. We have we have a few. Oh, as far as uh, the Mexican parented companies exactly. that have at least 750 million euro uh, of revenue that could be subject to yeah. pillar two, even if Mexico doesn't adopt like the U.S. in the various jurisdictions in which exactly. they operate. And even if in those cases where they could probably pass that threshold, again we have some CFC rules, very particular CFC rules, not as complex as the ones that you have in the states, but but definitely <laughs> fortunately <some> for you, <laughs> but definitely <laughs> something to, to to follow in there that. Again, um, at least what we're hearing is there's no intention of the government to change or modify those rules to try to be compatible with uh, the Pillar 2. So for now, I think we are on the safe side. We don't think there's mm -hmm. going to be any significant movement or discussion around this Pillar 2 probably for the next couple of years, but you know, we'll see how this develops. Yeah, one of the things that you know, I've given some thought to, and I know we've chatted a little about, is with respect to the Maquiladora regimes that we talked to a little bit a bit earlier. And you know, effectively what that allows taxpayers to do, again, is to treat the Mexican subsidiary as a toll manufacturer mm -hmm. and that, that the foreign investor and the principal company. So you know, one of the, the questions that I have is, is that you know, the model rules and commentary generally require for purpose of determining your globe income that taxpayers are operating from an arm's length perspective. And yeah. so the question that I don't think there's an answer to, um, but is there risk and, and, and probably something that the, the Mexican policymakers should, should be thinking about, you know, is there risk that the income associated with the maquila is viewed as below arm's length or less than arm's length, such that additional income could be attributed from whatever the principal jurisdiction is yeah. down to Mexico, and then that could certainly cause Mexico to be diluted well below the 30% statutory Correct. rate. Correct. No, I, I totally agree with you. As you said, I mean, it's something that we're giving in some thought, we're analyzing. I really think that due to the mechanics that has to be followed, that could definitely follow into that category. That that could definitely be something that we will have to to analyze and 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 kind of you know continue seeing how this develops. But but yes, there's definitely a possibility, at least right now, a theoretical possibility that that could be the 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 the, the case that this particular regime is seen as a, sort of an incentive that would be uh, that do, uh, through the adjustments uh, yeah, uh, the from, from a transfer passing perspective, mm -hmm. that you know they will have they, they will probably put you in that position to have to consider some some additional revenue, some inclusion for this uh, pillar mm -hmm. too. So yeah, and then it begs the question of does it make sense to do a qualified domestic minimum tax or like other jurisdictions? Do you rethink these types of incentive regimes? Yeah. Uh, lots of questions that are applicable not just to Mexico, the U.S., yeah. and frankly any other kind of global anybody operating globally now with multinational. Correct. So, Correct. All right, Mario. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, a good flyby on Mexican taxation. Thank you very much. No, Informative you. as always. And it's great to finally have you on the cross-border tax talks. Perfect. Thanks so much, Doug. Thank you. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Mario Alberto Gutierrez, PwC Mexico's International Tax Services Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. 
Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.